You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So it's not going to be him. Anthony Weiner is not going to be the electoral test case that makes the world safe for our children in the future. As I've said previously on the show, uh, all of our kids are out there furiously sexting and texting away with each other. And if we make you know, inappropriate dick shots or boob shots, a disqualifier from public life or public office or good jobs or good careers, we're basically setting up everyone under 20 for eventual exposure and – uh, failure. They, they won't be able to have jobs or, or hold elected office. We, we need to get to a place where a few stray dick pics getting online are not a disqualifier. I thought maybe we would get to that place with Anthony Weiner and, and I said that weeks and weeks and weeks ago when he first jumped into the race, when he had his big rehabilitation rollout, right? The, the New York Times Magazine piece and the, the pieces on television with his wife and their kid talking about the lessons he's learned and only after all of that, only after he got into the mayoral race did it come out that he had been sexting still after the first scandal that drove him from office. And then it came out that he'd had some sort of inappropriate relationship with a congressional staffer back when he was still single. And I'm just like, yeah, stick a fork in him. He's done. He is not going to be our test case. And he wasn't. The uh, Democratic primary took place last week in New York City. And uh, some guy who seems like a really decent liberal lefty, he won. And Christine Quinn who carried a lot of water for Mayor Bloomberg uh, in New York uh, and is a lesbian and had been endorsed by uh, you know, lots of gay people. She lost and Wiener lost and so he is not going to be the test case. And I think, I think he deserved to lose. But after I ran my mouth about him, I kind of shut up about him and let the whole thing play out. I do got to say though that you know, when the, the second round of sexting emerged, when the Sidney Leathers case – Broke. Sidney Leathers was sort of styled as the victim here, the innocent girly who got caught up in Anthony Weiner's dick picky machinations. And I think that's not true. I think we've seen from Sidney Leathers that she's kind of basking in this in her moment. She's doing porn. She showed up with her new tits at Anthony Weiner's victory rally slash concession speech locale. Uh, to try to confront him and have an interview with him and just get into a picture with him because it's helping to extend her 15 minutes. You know, the way narratives work in America around, around sex is that, you know, when something ugly happens and something blows up, somebody's got to be the victim. That, and, and, you know, in the case of Anthony Weiner's second round of sexting scandal and his involvement with Sidney Leathers, she was at first styled as kind of the naif and the innocent victim in all of this and uh, bullshit. It was a mutually exploitative kind of horseshitty relationship. But it seems like if anybody got the shitty end of the stick there, it might have been Anthony Weiner. Sometimes when I, you know, reading about Sidney Leathers and what she's been up to and how she's behaved as all of this unfolded, I really think that she was the bigger creep. And that's setting the bar really high. To be the bigger creep than Anthony Weiner, you got to work at it. That takes that takes effort. But to you know, swan around at first presenting yourself as the victim and then do porn and say this is about your own sexual agency and I'm fine with doing porn. I'm pro-porn. And then to just show up to torment him at his concession speech and chase him through a McDonald's, just the whole thing is – 
they're both revolting. We, we don't have to pick sides here. They're both kind of fucked up revolting characters. Maybe they deserve each other. Maybe they should be handcuffed together in some sort of horrible sexting buddy picture and forced to spend the rest of their lives negotiating the terms of their relationship. But anyway, it's going to have to be somebody else. We are going to get to a point where somebody's going to have their dirty pictures online and they're going to have to stare that down just like we've had elected officials thrown out for drug use, disqualified for drug use, lose office for drug use, have their nominations yanked for drug use. And now we have a president after 30 years of this horseshit who admitted to having used drugs. The previous president was known to and refused to – wouldn't deny it or confirm it. The president before that said he used but didn't inhale. And now we're, we're more adult about this. We realize that all adults – have used drugs at some point, that you wouldn't want to vote for somebody for president who hadn't smoked pot because that person would obviously have some sort of social maladaptation that all normal, decent, smart, relatively capable, socially adept people have experimented with pot. So electing somebody president who's some kind of socially maladapted robot who'd never tried pot, like subconsciously on some level that rankles. You're like, no, you can't vote for somebody for president who hasn't smoked pot. Everybody who's a normal human being is smoke pot and we want a normal human being for president. Well, that standard will apply in the future to sexting. We want a normal human being to be president or mayor of New York. And normal human beings, all of them very soon in the future, all of them will have dirty pictures circulating online somewhere. And it will be just like pot use, a non-issue. I had hoped that Anthony Weiner would get us to that non-issue place sooner but – Alas, uh, due to Anthony Weiner's other issues, it was not to be. But I'm going to say it again. For our kids' sake, we need to get there. For the children, think of the children. Think, if you're a parent, of your children to whom you have given iPhones, which are basically porn production studios that they carry around in their pockets. Think of the children. We need to have a politician, a major politician, a national figure wrecked briefly career derailed by the dirty sexting picture scandal who then reemerges slightly contrite but not too contrite, is rehabilitated, slightly contrite but not too contrite and is then elected. So we can do away with this as a disqualifier. We don't want this to be a disqualifier. For the same reason we want somebody who's never used pot to be president. We don't want somebody in 10 years' time or 20 years' time who never texted a picture of his dick or her pussy out to a partner to be president because that will just be some abnormal shit. If you have never texted, if you have never sexted in 20 years, you're some sort of freak. And we don't want some sort of freaks to be president. We want freaks like us to be president. I think of that standard that people applied when George W. Bush was running against Al Gore. Who would you rather have a beer with? And a lot of people picked George W. Bush and voted for him on the who would you rather have a beer with metric. In the future, perhaps, perhaps sooner than you think, the metric will be who would you rather sext with? And we'll end up voting for that guy. And in, again, it's in our kids' best interest that we get there quickly. And now your freaky calls. Hi, Dan. My name's Sean. I am a 23-year-old gay man from West Virginia. And I had a quick question about how to deal with familiar relationships. My dad and I haven't spoken for nearly a year now. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm gay or anything to do with me, really, other than when I was... In high school, uh, my stepmother went through this period where she was really crazy, and she uh, accused me of doing some very terrible things to my younger brother and sister. So my mother promptly removed me from my father's home and had me move in with her. The issue in this situation was is that my dad did nothing to protect me 
or to defend me, he actually ended up taking sides with my stepmom. And uh, he essentially betrayed my trust and called me a pedophile. It was one of the most heartbreaking and terrible experiences of my life, but I learned that he was still my dad, and I forgave him initially. Um, after about three months of not talking, I went over to his house and had a, a little bit of a heart-to-heart. I'm sorry that I'm a little bit out of breath, but um, and this is actually a really hard thing to talk about. But long story short is he, he hurt me, and I don't know how to forgive him for that. I've, I've tried. I, I forgave him for a short period, but I just... It boiled up and it festered, and I held on to it for the longest period, and I just couldn't let it go. I just, I don't want to see him, but he confronted me the other day. He showed up at my apartment. It was out of the blue and completely scared me, um, to the point that when I saw him, my first reaction was not to stand there and say, Hi, Dad, how are you? It was to run and get somewhere safe, because I felt such anxiety. But he wants to be a part of my life, and I don't know if I can do that. And I just wanted to know if... You think that's okay, or if there's any reason that I should try and salvage that relationship. You know, you said that this accusation that was leveled against you by your your wicked, evil stepmother had nothing to do with the fact that you're gay. And actually, it had everything to do with the fact that you were gay. You know, the, the accusation that all gay people are pedophiles, that people become gay because they've been seduced or molested, and then gay people, gay adults, gay teenagers turn around and do the same to young children, that is the anti-gay blood libel. That is what we're seeing play out in Russia right now where uh, to be gay is being conflated with pedophilia and gay teenagers are being abused and abducted and assaulted and violated and outed, uh, forced to drink urine, beaten up, threatened because the, the people who are assaulting them, these monsters, believe that if they're gay, they're pedophiles. And so that accusation had everything to do with your stepmother's homophobia. Yeah. And so I think you need to – you need to be able to articulate that to your father if you're going to have any sort of relationship with him, that you were you were subjected in his home by his spouse to a homophobic attack, right? That you were maligned and defamed and, and, and brutalized in this way. And what has he done? You know, now that you're contemplating whether or not you should have a relationship with your father a year later, what has he done to make this up to you? Nothing. Has he, apolog- really, he- has, has he apologized? Uh, he he said he was sorry, but I mean, there, there's only so much sorry can do. Is he still with this woman? Uh, yes. Were they her children that she accused you of molesting? Uh, yes. They, um, my father's and hers. They are my uh, step siblings. And well, I guess half brother and sister. Let's just get this on the record: you did not molest your half siblings. Absolutely not. I love them. And there was never any evidence that you molested them. Did your wicked stepmother go to the police? Were there charges? How far did this go? Uh, She actually um, attempted to, well, not attempted to, she did call Child Protective Services. They started to file a report, but there was no evidence. There was no proof. There was no backing Mm -hmm. um, to her claims. Did she coach your half-siblings to lie or to testify against you? Uh, Not that I know of. So this is one of those cases where – and this is common – where people will abuse their spouse's children from a pre- previous relationship. They would like those children not to exist and it sounds like this was your stepmother's way of getting you out of the picture, of making her children the only children. Yeah. And your father has not apologized to the extent that he should. Uh, no, no. And, he hasn't. And he's still with this woman who leveled this charge against his son. Mm-hmm. And 
she has not apologized. Uh, no, not to the extent that she should have. All right. Fuck them. You don't have to have a relationship with your father on his terms just because he wants to have a relationship with you. Not after they put you through this. Fuck him. Tell him, you don't, tell him you don't want to see him. Write him a letter and say – detail what was done to you, how horrible that was, that that sort of accusation, that sort of charge lingers in a person's life, damages a person's soul, that he failed to protect you as a parent and that you don't see why you should have to have a relationship with him that honors him as a parent when he failed you so spectacularly as a parent. And as I've said to other kids with queer kids, any kid, your leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. And you may be able to leverage out of him the apology, the reckoning that should be coming, right? That should have already come by refusing to see him regardless if there is no reckoning, if you don't get the apology that you deserve, the extent of the apology that you deserve, then – you don't have to see him. Either way, you win by refusing to see him. He's either going to come through with the apology and the divorce the bitch that he should have done when this all went down because she did that to you. He's either going to come through with that, an apology that that, that is to, to the degree that you know that's commiserate with the crime that was committed against you, this false accusation, or you're not going to have to have him in your life if he fails to come up with that apology that satisfies you. Either way, you win so long as you're willing to – Use the leverage that you have over your father, which is your presence. He does not have a right to have you in his life as an adult child. Right. Thank you. Um, you you've helped to confirm a lot of what I've been feeling and thinking. And oh gosh, <laughs> I'm sorry that this uh, was done to you. And how old were you when this was done to you? I, um, it actually was a series of accusations um, that took over uh, two years, and I was. 14 oh when the first god. one was leveled against me. Oh my god, how horrifying that must have been for you. Mm-hmm. It was really rough. I mean, just starting high school and then having that thrown in your face. Were you out at 14? Uh, no, um, I actually didn't come out until college, but it wasn't exactly hard to figure out. Right. Oh. Okay, well, if, you, if all you were looking for was my blessing not to hang out with or see your dad or make nice with your dad, you have it. And I'm glad that I'm glad that your mom was there for you and was able to step up. She's been probably the strongest person in my life, and I I couldn't make it without her. Well, <laughs> there's the parental figure. There's the parent that you should love and honor. A parent who loved and honored and protected you as a child. You do not have to love and honor a parent that failed to protect you as a child and was complicit and was complicit in this attack. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hello. I am a 27-year-old, straight-ish, single female, and I'm very casually seeing this man with a solely fuck buddy setup. Literally, I only see the person in the bedroom. We don't have any extracurricular activity. And I'm happy to have this setup. The sex is fun, and I want to continue it. There's just one problem, and that is that this man has some sort of issue with kissing, as in, we don't kiss ever. We don't even kiss to start things. Usually he just goes down on me right away. It's, it's not that I don't feel pretty or wanted. It's, it's actually that he's always the one contacting me to get together. But I do have to say that I really like kissing as a sexual act. I think it's really fun. And 
I just, well, the point being is I would like to introduce kissing into the mix. I'm not a shy person, and I'm happy to converse. But the question is, how do I bring something like that up while maintaining our very comfortable and casual situation? I don't really want to see this man anymore if he's not open to kissing, but I feel like I need to give him a chance and see why he avoids my face at all costs. Anyways, I want to ask, and I I want to tell him what I want. I just don't know how to do it without changing the nature of our arrangement. You are a shy person, and you are not happy to converse. Think about what you just said. You want kissing as a sex act uh, to be included in, in, in the menu, and you're not afraid of losing him, and you don't want to continue to have sex with him if kissing isn't on the menu. So why not just throw that down? What's the worst that could happen? He'll say, I don't want to kiss you, and you'll say, well, then it's over. The end. You're more of a victim perhaps of the, the conditioning that women are subjected to as young girls being brought up to, to avoid confronting men or disappointing men or telling men – or making any demands on a man sexually or intimately or socially. And so you're afraid of confronting this guy that you could take or leave with a demand that's entirely reasonable because what could happen? Because then you will have been the kind of woman who – is sexually self-assertive, that you stuck up for yourself, you advocated for yourself. Those are all things that good girls don't do. And so even in the circumstance where you literally have nothing to lose, nothing is at stake, you can't bring yourself to do it. So you are shyer than you know. You are more fearful of conversing and making a demand on a man than you realize or are able to admit. Go tell him. The next time his face is headed down towards your pussy, grab him by the ears and pull him up to your face and say – Yes, you can eat my pussy after you eat my mouth. After you keep – don't say eat my mouth. That's gross. That's not how people talk about it. Pull them up to your face and say, yes, you can totally stick that tongue in my pussy after you stick that tongue in my mouth for a minute. I like kissing. We should kiss. doesn't have to mean anything. For me, it is as fuck buddy a, a sex act as you going down on me and no more intimate, perhaps less intimate. I can't believe that he would consider it more intimate to kiss than to stick his – face in your twat. Perhaps you – because you haven't conversed with him about this, it could be that he isn't kissing you out of respect for what he perceives to be your boundaries. The first few times, dozen times, however long this has been going on, you've gotten together. He didn't initiate kissing and neither did you and you don't know if he didn't initiate it because he didn't want to do it. Maybe he didn't initiate it because he didn't sense from you that kissing was something that you wanted. So he may be deferring to what he believes to be your limits and your boundaries. Maybe he'd love to kiss you. If you weren't so shy and fearful of conversing, you could find out. Maybe you would have found out sooner. Next time he's over, tell him. Tell him kissing is on the menu or it's over. And I bet, I bet you will get the kisses you deserve and want. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight guy in his late 30s. I've been in a long-distance relationship with a woman for uh, almost three years, and I've realized I need to break up with her. I still love her, but I can't handle the challenges involved with long distances, uh, challenges she's content to ignore, and now I'm looking for the gentlest, least cruel way to break up with her. Three years is obviously long enough that this conversation should happen face-to-face, but the long-distance thing makes that problematic. 
The next time I'm going to see her is in a month. She's traveling on business for a few weeks and then coming home by flying through my city to visit me for a few days before making the five-hour drive from my house back to her house. And those tickets are already bought. And I don't know, it seems kind of really harsh to welcome her after eight hours of flying just to break up with her the night she gets here, which leaves her the choice of spending the night or driving five hours back home. It, it also seems kind of harsh to have a couple of nice days with her and break up with her at the end of her visit. And it's not like I can visit her before she gets here in a month and take all that travel on myself because she's across the country till then. But what does that leave? A phone call that com feels completely disrespectful and cowardly and Skype doesn't really strike me as any better. And stringing her along for what would probably be two months before I can get out to where she lives is kind of a dick move. Like you say, if she realized I wanted to break up for that long, she'd feel even worse. And that whole passive-aggressive pulling back till she dumps me bullshit is just out of the question, which I think brings me back to the cowardly phone call. I, I don't know. I'm really at a loss here, Dan. Please help me out. Blah, blah, blah. You know what you have to do. You have to be the villain here in the piece. There's no right way to play this. The reason people say you shouldn't break up via text or a phone call is because they don't want you to break up with them at all. You shouldn't also break up by letting her come visit. You shouldn't break up when she arrives because then she's going to have to leave right away. You shouldn't break up after two days of making nice because then you lied to her for two days and how horrible that was. The realization when you broke up on Sunday that you wanted to break up on Friday. There's no way to do this that is going to seem anything – Less than unkind. So you should just do it. Tear the bandaid off. Tell her now. There's a month between now and her arrival. She can rebook fucking tickets. Even if she has to pay a little bit to rebook, I bet the rebooking fee will be less of a pain in the ass than the five-hour tearful drive home from the face-to-face -face dumping that is no more courteous than the honest Dear John Dear John, uh, fella, call, text, email. And what I always tell people is you know, the minute you know that you want to dump somebody, you should dump them swiftly uh, and make a clean break. For all you know, she could – you know, you could dump her now and she could be totally devastated and in a week of like crying, assuming that you know, it really will break her heart uh, you know, and talking to her friends, she finally starts to get over it and two weeks later she goes out and she meets somebody. And maybe that person that she could meet in the next month is a person that she could spend the rest of her life with. And your waiting to break up with her could derail that meeting. You never know. So do it now. Do it on the phone. Call her. T tell her you're very sorry you, but you don't want her to come all this way only to find this out and then have to drive home alone after finding this out and then release her. It's the kind thing to do. The sooner you dump somebody when you know it's over, the better. And don't get sucked into bullshit etiquette debates about which is the, the, the right and proper and most legitimate way. Email, face-to-face, -face, text, Skype, whatever. The, the, the most legitimate and kindest way to dump someone is promptly and with whatever tools you need to use to do that. Dan and the TextIOV at-risk truth, I have quite a problem. I have been dating my boyfriend for three years. I am a straight 23-year-old girl in Las Vegas, Nevada. Our relationship's pretty good. I mean, we connect on a mental level very well. Uh, we're both very goofy and fun, and we have a lot of fun together. But, alas, the problem 
the problem is, is that he's gained about 25 pounds since we've been together. And he, I, I don't find it that big of a deal. I mean, I would like for him to be healthy and I've suggested for him to go to the gym. But he has expressed to me that is a big reason why we're not having as much sex anymore. We used to have sex quite often, at least uh, about three to four times a week. And now we have sex like once every two weeks. If I initiate it, he won't initiate it. And I can't touch his stomach when we're cuddling because he doesn't like it. And I've told him a million times to go to the gym. I'm at the point where I'm just like, you need to go to the gym. It's a simple solution, but he won't do it. And he keeps saying he's going to do it, but he won't. And I have a very high libido. I require at least, at minimum, twice a week. And that's not a big task. I don't think it is, at least. I just, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I love him a lot, and we connect in so many ways, and I know that you usually say to people that if they're not sexually compatible, then they can't work, but we have been before, but I think it's because of his weight problem that he won't want to have sex. He doesn't feel as good about about himself. So what... I already suggested what you said before, where, oh, let's both go to the gym, but he still doesn't do it. I don't know. He just doesn't seem to care that we've had less sex than usual. He just doesn't, it doesn't bother him like it's bothering me. It's, it's making me freak out. I mean, I had a sexual dream about a fellow employee at my workplace because I'm just so horny that I'm just freaking out and having sexual dreams about random people. I, just, I don't know what to do. I'm really frustrated sexually and mentally and need your help. Thanks, Dan. Usually in cases we get a call like this where one person's gained weight and the sex life is tanked, it's the person who hasn't gained a lot of weight who uh, doesn't want to fuck the person who's gained weight. They don't know how to deal with the fact that their attraction to their partner is waning because of this physical change uh, and you know the standard operating sort of procedure with the manual, the sex advice manual for advice professionals like me says that I'm supposed to wag a finger in the face of the person who's less attracted to their partner because their body has changed. Bodies change, da, 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 da. but you know, bodies change and then there's you know, radical change. There's uh, lack of maintenance. Right, and that applies whether you were fit and you're getting bigger, or you were bigger and somebody came to you and was attracted to you because you were bigger, and you suddenly drop all the weight. Radical, thoughtless, inconsiderate change can undermine a sex life, but that's not the case here. Right, undermine someone's attraction to you or your attraction to them, but that's not the case here. You want to fuck him; he does not want to fuck you because he is feeling bad and ashamed or insecure or whatever about his body and so he doesn't want his body in play and that's destroying your sex life. And when, and he won't go to the gym despite your importuning. So what do you do? You're going crazy. You're not having sex, not because you don't want to have sex with him. Uh, you love him at the size he was when you met him and you wanted to fuck him then. You love him at the size he is now and you want to fuck him now. He doesn't want to fuck you. What do you do? Well, you can't make him fuck you any more than you can obviously make him go to the gym which might help him feel better about himself. It could be that he is slamming his hand down on the self-destruct button here and what he's saying is he would rather be out of this relationship than do anything to change the circumstance right now. It is unreasonable and irrational of him and I hope you've communicated this to him to expect you to go without sex forever or until he feels better about his body which could be a while if he's not willing to do anything that might help him get back into fucking shape or whatever it is he thinks he needs to be in before you guys can be intimate again. 
la la la, make him go to the doctor, get him checked for depression. Some people gain weight or、uh, their libido tanks or whatever because they are clinically depressed, and that could be part of it. And he could be medicated for that and bounce back, not bounce back to his previous weight necessarily, but bounce back to wanting to fuck his girlfriend who wants to fuck him at whatever size he is. If he won't do that. He won't go to the doctor. He won't see if he's depressed. He won't get his hormone levels checked. He won't go to the gym. He won't fuck you. Taking all that together, to me, that says I would rather be single than be with you. And if that's the case, won't go to the doctor. Won't get his hormone levels checked. Won't see if he's depressed. Won't go to the gym. Won't fuck you. You'll have to end it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old. Have identified as bi. Now thinking more gay. Male, and I've been married for a couple of years now, and、um, actually ending my marriage、uh, due to my sexuality and the, the questioning and all that. There, amicable and, and very, you know, honest and and open there, and、um, no animosity, but unsure of kind of the next step. We're separated and. I'm looking at dating again, which is scary. Dating guys who may not necessarily be, you know, into having a dating guy who has a, a kid and, and maybe getting a divorce or in the process of getting divorced. My question is, when is the appropriate time to broach that topic? Do you do it right away? Do you wait after a couple of dates? Do you do it in the talking leading up to the first date?、Um, just kind of not sure where to go from here. So you're about to get out there. You want to date guys, and you're worried that you're going to meet guys who aren't into guys, who don't want to date guys, who have kids from previous relationships. You will meet guys like that. I promise you, you will meet guys like that. You would meet guys like that if you were a single, suddenly single, divorced female parent. You would meet women like that if you were straight and you were looking to date other women. There are some people out there who do not want to date people who have kids from previous relationships, and you know what? Those people are not the right people for you to date. Ta-da! See how that works. You will meet people like that, and when they find out have you you have kids, it'll be over, and it should be over because you're not right for them. They're not right for you. You shouldn't want to waste any time on them,、uh, and so you shouldn't fear disclosing this because this will help you sift and sort through the guys who are interested in you to find the right guys who are interested in you, and then find the right guy perhaps for you if you want to have a relationship.、Um, I don't think there are as many of those guys out there as you fear. There are a lot of gay dudes out there and bi dudes out there who have children from previous straight relationships and marriages, who have male partners, who have boyfriends, who have husbands. Now, some of those guys were into the guy in part because of the kid, because this was a way to sort of bank shot parent. This was a way to be part of a child's life without having to be the primary responsible parent or necessarily have a child living with you in your home full time. This thing that will make you less attractive to some guys. And you're worried about that. That's going to make you more attractive to some other guys. So, it's a wash. It'll drive off some guys. It'll attract other guys. Some guys won't care. When do you disclose? Whenever it comes up in conversation, naturally and early. There's a lot of divorced people out there with children who are dating in gay land, straight land, bi land, whatever land. And it's nothing you should be ashamed of. And if it sends anybody running for the hills, good. Fucking riddance, and the sooner those people run for the hills, the better, because then you haven't wasted any time or emotional energy or semen on them. Hi, Dan.、Um, I'm a 31-year-old lesbian. I won't tell you where I am because、uh, I'm 
kind of on the run from my crazy ex-wife, but I'm not calling about the abuse so much as a really unusual circumstance that we had in our marriage. Um, and I'm calling because I want to know if anyone else has ever experienced this, if you've ever heard of this. So um, it's kind of like Freudian penis movie, which I didn't think was a real thing. But my ex desperately, desperately wished that she had a penis. She's also a lesbian. You know, she would get really mad if she would say anything that would imply she didn't have a penis. Like, she was kind of almost delusional about it. And if I ever saw a movie or read a book and it had any reference to penises, she would flip out and tear up the book or stop the movie. Um, a lot of the abuse that went on in the relationship stemmed from the fact that she had this penis envy that was constantly being threatened by life, you know, reality coming in at every angle. Um, you know, our sex life revolved around her having imaginary blowjobs. <laughs> it was just 100% about her wishing she had a penis and constantly accusing me of being straight and going out and looking for penises every time she turned her back. So, yes, it became abusive and I got out, but I'm just struggling even now, months after I've left, with this question of what the fuck happened and <laughs> is there anyone else out there who is just all consumed by penis envy? Um, so if you could please shed some light on this, I would appreciate it. I'm looking at the penis envy page on Wikipedia and it says penis envy in Freudian psychoanalysis refers to the theorized reaction of a girl during her psychosexual development to the realization that she does not have a penis. Freud considered this realization a defining moment in the development of gender and sexual identity for women. And then there's a section on criticism of the penis envy Freudian theory and that goes on and on and on and on because most uh, people think it's bullshit. I don't think your ex-girlfriend had penis envy in the classical Freudian sense. I think she wished she had a penis but I think the the overarching issue, the, the, the much bigger issue, bitch be crazy. That was the problem. Your ex-girlfriend was fucking nuts and it kind of all – she poured all her bat shittery into that issue and became obsessed about that particular issue and it sounds like you guys had a really demented and limited and weird sex life uh, and – that she wasn't able to make the leap that I've no other lesbians have made where they think it might be fun to have a penis. So they have a drawer full of them that they haul out and use whenever they feel like it might be fun to have a penis for a few minutes. But they don't obsess about it. They don't mourn it. They don't grieve it. They don't terrorize their partners about it. Um, they just have them. They have them around. Penises are fun. I have a case of them at home, I heard a lesbian friend once say. Uh, so why ask why? Why wonder what was wrong with your girlfriend? And, and don't don't – elevate her issues to something as dignified sounding as penis envy. All you need to tell yourself is that woman was nuts and I'm glad that she's out of my fucking life and the next time I'm with somebody and the bat shittery begins to show, I'm not going to hang out as long as I hung out last time. I'm not going to put up with that kind of shit in whatever guise it comes next time again because I'm not going to be in an abusive relationship again. There are lots of lesbians out there, you know, masculine lesbians, butch lesbians who think it might be cool, it might be fun to have a dick. Uh, they they want to, you know, be the penetrator and they're, they're able to do it again with strap-on dildos. But they're also able to please women with their fingers, their tongues, their toes, their other toys and they don't 
swan around all day grieving what they don't got. They're getting on with what they do got and when they want to have some dicky action, they want to fuck the shit out of somebody using their hips instead of their tongue or their hands or their forearms or their fists, they strap one on and do it. And then when it's over, they enjoy the orgasm that they provided someone with or the fucking that they gave somebody or the, and the orgasm they were able to give themselves simultaneously if they're really talented. Uh, and they take that strap on off and they go have some fucking ice cream because they're not fucking crazy like your ex-girlfriend. She's fucking crazy. Hey, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old straight male and I recently got out of a non-relationship. Um, and what I mean by that is that it was only three months. Um, it was an intense three months. She had met my family, my gay godparents. She had a key to my place. Um, et cetera, but we were never officially boyfriend and girlfriend. And that was because I had some major trust issues with her that stemmed in part from the fact that she had, you know, cheated on all of her previous serious relationships. So given her past and given that I don't know that I'm built for modern monogamy, we discussed that we were both interested in exploring an open relationship together. And we decided that we were going to date for a bit before making things formal, Facebook official and all that. But with the, with the idea in mind that we were gearing towards this open relationship. So we never established formal rules. I figured once the relationship was official, things like how much we talk about other partners, fluid bonding, all of those things would come into play. Um, but there were some basic understandings that I thought we both had in how a relationship open or otherwise would function, um, that she clearly didn't share that view. So like twice when we went out together for the evening, she ended up meeting someone else. Um, and that wasn't something I had a problem with. If she had just gotten some guy's number and contacted him another time. Um, but the first time this happened, she introduced me to the guy who she'd been off with for the past half an hour and then literally hopped into a cab and went home with him and left our night, you know, uh, that we had together with him, but disappeared for five hours claims to have blacked out the whole time and not remembered any of that happening. So my question is this, how early on in an open relationship do you believe that rules should be established and how inclusive do those rules need to be? Now, I didn't think it was necessary to establish a rule that said, don't ditch the person you're on a date with for the evening for a stranger you just met in a bar. I thought that was decent human being intuition, but uh, again, it's not how it played out. Um, so we stopped dating after a similar incident happened two weeks later, um, but it's definitely left me confused and hurt about how to approach future open relationships. The difference between a non-monogamous relationship and a total assholeless relationship, and you were in a relationship with a, a selfish and considerate asshole. You know, I'm in a monogamish relationship myself, and there are rules that are not articulated because they don't need to be articulated. For instance. Terry and I do not have a rule against murdering the people that we have sex with outside of our relationship, butchering their bodies and making chili out of them. It would never occur to us to make that rule because it would never occur to us to murder and butcher somebody we'd had a three-way with uh, and make chili out of them and serve it to the neighbor kids. We wouldn't do that, right? And so we don't need a rule against it. It's obvious. That's not something you do. You know what else isn't something you do? You don't go out. With someone you're dating, you don't go with your primary partner, the person that you have sort of an emotional commitment to that you're in a non-monogamous relationship with and then leave with somebody else. You don't – no ditching is a rule you don't have to make like no murdering. So you were in not a functioning, healthy, non-monogamous relationship. You were in a relationship with another crazy person 
like the previous call. You're just in a relationship with another crazy person who under the guise of openness and non-monogamy was just fucking with you, was just doing whatever the fuck she wanted and wanted to put a label on it that kind of dignified her bad behavior and her inconsiderate nature. You're just being thoughtless and selfish and obnoxious and horrible. And you know what? There's a guy out there who would love that. There's a guy out there who wants perhaps the kind of batshit relationship that she has to offer. There's a guy out there who is into cuckolding or hot wifing and to be ditched in a bar by his wife or girlfriend because she met somebody else and she's going to go fuck that person and then come back would be his dream. He would stand there in that bar for the next four hours until she got back with a raging heart on. You're not that guy. So you know, maybe she's not crazy. Maybe she was just rolling out the kind of open relationship that she wants, which is a cuckolding style, humiliation, drizzled open relationship. That's not the one you want. And yeah, you are not at fault here for not articulating the rule of no ditching any more than I will be at fault if I go home one day and Terry has murdered and butchered and made chili out of somebody else because we didn't have a rule against it. So what are the lessons for you going forward? If you ever want to try a non-monogamous, open-ish relationship ever again or a monogamish relationship, um, you want to err on the side of making rules and, and making them explicit. And you've been burned once. You had this relationship with this person. It might be a good way of testing the sanity and uh, relationship qualifications of your next girlfriend if you're thinking about having an open relationship where you explain what your previous open relationship was like, how this other girl behaved and see how they react. If they don't think there's a problem with the way she behaved, that's not somebody you want to be in an open relationship with. If they think that obviously that is a problem and not something that they would ever do, then they're a better candidate for an open relationship. Hey, um, I'm a 23-year-old gay male in Chicago and my question is when is slut-shaming warranted? A little background on the situation. The friend in question had been my friend since sophomore year of high school. I can't even begin to explain how the level of intimacy my friendship with this woman reached. But at times, uh, it was close to an all-out romantic relationship without the sex. (laughs) I suffered from severe depression and anxiety from 18 to 20 years old. So much so that I was hospitalized for a time and heavily medicated for quite a while. Uh, My friend was well aware of this, and at the height of my depression, I called her, and she basically talked me out of killing myself. The next day, she texted me uh, to say that she was sick of my antics, and she was basically done with me. Deeply hurt, I never applied to her and became a drunken mess for about a year, and she was my only support system for the most part, so I was left without a friend. About a year later, after all this had happened, she showed up at my house uh, drunk one night, and she demanded that I wake up and that we make up, but I wasn't having anything to drop. Anyway, she proceeded to call my brother and fucked him that that very night as a result of this. I know her very well, and I know that she would only do this as a way to upset me. Of this, I'm certain, as it's been confirmed by my other by my brother and others that she wanted me to know about the whole situation. Additionally, but kind of unrelated, uh, she's fucked up her sister's husband, um, her other sister's fiance. They're no longer together, and it's constantly talked about flirt, for flirting with other people's boyfriends. I'm a very sex-positive person, but I have resorted to very publicly slut-shaming her on several occasions, and my question to you is, is there ever a point at which slut-shaming can be justified when it is kind of okay, when it's warranted? I kind of hate myself for saying this, 
but you know, about a past bestie, but her manipulative and uncaring use of sex has led me to shame her on more than one social occasion. I'm not proud of it, but I feel that at a certain point it is deserved. Is slut shaming ever okay? No. Slut shaming is never okay. You know what's okay? Accountability. Accountability is okay. If this woman, your ex-best friend who talked you out of suicide uh, and then fucked your brother, if she has this penchant for maliciously banging people to get back at other people, sleeping with somebody's fiance, fucking your brother to retaliate against you because you didn't want to have a relationship with her again, that will – word will get out. You know, Her actions will be discussed and you don't have to discuss them in a slut-shamey way. What slut-shaming does and says is that women don't have a right to be sexual and that women who are sexual, who enjoy sex, who seek sex, uh, that there's something – evil or wrong or damaged or disgusting about them and you don't want to contribute to that cultural horse shittery because you know what? You know, you want to attack a woman, the slut shame button is always there. You just reach out, you press the slut shame button and you've attacked her. You can destroy her. We've seen women, girls literally destroyed, dead of suicide because that button exists and it can be pressed to such catastrophic effect. You know what the button is for guys, the, 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 the corollary? Not nearly as damaging but it exists sort of right next to the slut shame button on the panel of human assholery. The, the, the button next to slut shame to attack dudes is fag shaming. It's to go after a guy for being a faggot, whether he's a faggot or not, but to disparage him for being gay. What is, that, what is it that so many straight people say they have a problem with gay men about that we have so many thousands of sex partners that we are sluts and a lot of homophobia is really rooted in misogyny, that gay men are perceived to be – like women or to have taken on the women's role and we're all getting fucked in the butts and we're all covered in shit. It's why when you talk to rabid homophobes, you rarely hear about lesbians. They don't really care what lesbians – they don't understand what lesbians do and they don't really care because lesbians aren't perceived as weak and feminine. So you know, when you reach out and you touch as a faggot – I say that as a faggot to a faggot. When you reach out and touch that slut-shaming button, you're really buying in to – a whole bunch of cultural assumptions and prejudices that boomerang back on you and screw up and harm you because the culture in which slut shaming is a viable option and a, a deadly reality uh, and a destructive reality in the lives of so many women is also a culture in which gay men are fag shamed, brutalized, bashed. And so you are complicit not only in the oppression of women when you as a fag, I say as a fag, engage in slut-shaming but complicit in your own impression. That's stupid. You have a right to your experience. If she went out and maliciously banged your brother and your brother is somehow the innocent victim in all of this, which is uh, whatever to that, she went out and stole cum from your brother in the middle of the night, you can talk about that. You know, my old friend so-and-so, we were friends for a long time but you know, she was mad at me one night and she kind of took advantage of my brother and fucked him just to make me mad and so we're not friends anymore. And you can legitimately talk about you know, why your relationship ended if you feel you must. But to run around in public forums, online, wherever it is that you're doing this and call her out and slut shame her uh, and, and bring up other experiences and events that you're not privy to the details of necessarily. You don't know exactly what happened. That's just you being an asshole and that is just you – being complicit ultimately in your own oppression because you're helping to prop up a culture of slut-shamery, which is also then a culture of fag-shamery and fag-bashery.
Don't do it. And you know what? If you want her out of your life, stop talking about her. Stop going after her. You guys aren't friends anymore. It doesn't sound like you like her much. It doesn't sound like she likes you much. Great. She's out of your life. The only thing that's keeping her in your life right now is your asshole faggot mouth and the way you're running it about her. You going after her, you attacking her is a way of keeping her in your life because eventually she's going to attack you back and then you two are going to be wrestling on the floor. You know, you had a friendship and now you have an enemyship. You want to have her out of your life? Don't have either thing. Don't have a friendship and don't have an enemyship. Have nothing. Don't talk about her. Take the fucking high road. That is how you win in a battle against someone who would maliciously steal cum from your brother in the middle of the night. You take the high road. You don't speak of it at all. If you must speak of it, the bare outline and then shut up and move on to some other subject. And that's what I'm going to do right now. When Chelsea Manning announced that she was Chelsea Manning after she'd been sentenced to 35 years in a federal prison, the Daily Beast ran an opinion piece about what Chelsea Manning could expect in federal prison and the Gawker headline really captured – the world's reaction to this piece, the internet's reaction to this piece. Daily Beast is optimistic that Chelsea Manning will enjoy prison rape. It was a piece authored by a former federal inmate for the Daily Beast called How Will Chelsea Manning Be Treated in Prison? And its author, Mansfield Frazier, who served some time in federal prison. His point of view was that uh, gay and trans inmates really did enjoy all the rape that they were subjected to in federal prison. Quoting from the piece, indeed, the vast majority of experienced convicts know that, quote, true rape is not a common occurrence in prison. That doesn't mean that homosexual sex doesn't occur. It certainly does. But it's really not unusual for a new prisoner to show up in the compound and begin walking around the yard in pants far too tight, blah, blah, blah. He also went on to say that some people return to prison on purpose because they just love all the dick, some people being gay and trans inmates. Actual research into prison rape and the way people are treated show that gay and trans inmates are subjected to violence and rape and assault at much higher rates than other inmates, that they are really preyed upon and that it is traumatizing and damaging and not good and not something that trans and gay inmates enjoy. So that was the Daily Beast. Chelsea Manning is really going to have a ball in prison. There was a much better piece in The Atlantic about how Chelsea Manning could expect to be treated in prison by Terry Schuster, an attorney who specializes in improving conditions of confinement in prisons. He's really studied how LGBT people are treated behind bars and he joins us now by phone. I was surprised when I read your piece, uh, Terry, and thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, you basically argue in the piece that Chelsea Manning can expect now because of some reforms to have a better experience in federal prison than trans or gay inmates in the past, in the very recent past, could have expected. Why is that? It's happened for a few reasons. One is that there has been uh, a lot of recent attention by experts around the country to the safety of gay and transgender inmates in prisons, uh, prisons and jails and juvenile facilities and all other types of lockups. The Prison Rape Elimination Act was passed 10 years ago by Congress. It was passed unanimously. And what it did was create a, uh, a commission of scholars and experts who would research the questions uh, of um, how does prison sex happen? How does prison rape happen? What forms does it come in? And what steps can be taken to protect those who have been victimized and those who might be victimized to 
separate those who might be perpetrators and those who are perpetrators from victims, and then generally to change the environment inside of prisons and jails to make them uh, places where this kind of thing can't happen in the future. These kind of non-consensual relationships, this kind of prison rape. This is this is staggering to me that, that the federal government would you know convene this panel to study sex in prison. I, I worked on prison issues when I was in ACT UP. It was my primary focus in, in Wisconsin was prison and prison rape. And we couldn't get prison uh, administrators. We couldn't get we couldn't get anyone from the Department of Corrections to acknowledge that sex happened in prison. Right. In the yeah, areas. I mean, it, what is happening right now? I think is really astonishing. It's hard to even explain to people who don't have a sense of prison culture and and. Uh, the environment normally in prison and the sort of culture among correctional officers and law enforcement, Mm -hmm. the policies and the staff training that are now being put in place in prisons and jails and juvenile facilities around the country are more supportive of LGBT people than those in most schools and workplaces. And more progressive on trans issues than many universities or schools. We have these battles raging across the right. country on trans issues with which bathroom and, and how a, a student identifies and which sports team they can play on, whether they identify as male right. or female and whether that aligns with their the, the gender they were assigned at birth. And it, it looks like the most progressive places because of this commission, because of this new federal law, the most progressive place sort of most into the institutions in our culture with the most progressive sort of attitudes and policies about caring for transgender people are going to be prisons? Yeah, I mean, it's an unlikely, you know, leader in human rights, you know, to, to be prisons, for prisons to be the place where when the experts got together and they examined how does prison rape happen and tried to come up with what's the answer, how do we fix this this problem? Isn't it remarkable that the answer they came up with was, well, we should treat trans folks with a little bit of dignity. The sort of quick answer of things that have improved for transgender inmates, um, you know, in all of these facilities around the country and things that are continuing to improve are um, having more opportunities to be safely housed, possibly with the gender they identify with and not just the gender they were born as, Mm -hmm. having additional protections during strip searches and pat-down searches for showers, um, uh, having, you know, training for all of staff in how to communicate professionally and respectfully with transgender inmates and how to create uh, harassment-free environments for transgender inmates. And it is really, it is remarkable. Well, we need to, we need to, of course, you know, throw out there that this, this is all very progressive in theory. We've yet to really see these policies be put into practice, right? These are just now being rolled out. They are being rolled out everywhere. And so the, the first compliance deadline was a couple of weeks ago, August 20th. Um, every state in the country, every governor had to demonstrate to the federal government that they have complied with the new PREA rules. PREA is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And so what they had to do to show compliance was, hey, all of our policies have been revised. Mm -hmm. Um, All of our staff have been retrained. And so for the past six months to a year, these changes have been rolled out. And so if I were a transgender person and I were going into prison today, my treatment in prison is likely to be much better today than it was a year ago. And this is a large percentage of the prisoners targeted for rape or sexual abuse in prison are trans and gay. So if you're going to try to solve prison rape, prevent prison rape, you have to address the particular needs and vulnerabilities of trans and gay inmates, which is what the law 
whether that was the intention when it was passed, which the law ended up doing in, in practice. Right. It's a, it's a really kind of interesting moment when trying to solve one societal problem ended up carrying with it a solving another societal problem. You know, the, addressing the question of rape ended up addressing prejudice against uh, queer inmates. It seems to me that in reading your article, the most kind of progressive uh, element of the new PREA rules is how it allows people to define transgender, allows a transgender individual to define transgender for themselves because sometimes institutions, universities, schools, uh, medical boards, they get into arguments about top surgery, bottom surgery, whether you've had hormone treatments or not hormone treatments and you have these institutions saying to the transgender person, you don't meet our standard for identifying as transgender, regardless of how you feel. But the PREA rules say what? So the PREA rules define a lot of terms. They define gender identity. They define transgender. They define gender nonconforming. They define, define intersex. Transgender is defined as someone whose gender identity, their internal sense of feeling male or female, is different from their assigned sex at birth. Um, it's defined this now in this way in policy which means this has to be the definition that is adopted by every prison, every jail, every juvenile facility, every police lockup. Mm -hmm. The opportunity through the PREA regulations to educate um, people who run prisons, administrators and wardens, was seized uh, by people who know about transgender identity and transgender education. So one of the great things about housing, for example, if the, the protection for housing that is put in place for transgender inmates says that when a prison receives at intake a transgender person um, and is making a decision about where do we house this person? Do we house them with men? Do we house them with women? Do we house them in a group cell or do we house them in a cell by themselves? They have to make a case-by-case -case determination about whether or not this person will be at risk of sexual victimization if placed in one one or another of those places. And so and in that, that decision, they have to also consult with the person themselves and ask them, where would you feel the safest? Would you feel more safe and more comfortable living with women? Would you feel more safe and more comfortable living with men? And they have to take that seriously. Um, they also have to revisit that decision at least twice a year to make sure that they made the right decision. So if they place a transgender male to female person in a men's prison or a men's jail, and in the next six months that person gets sexually victimized, they have to revisit the housing decision and figure out, is this a safe place for that person? And if not, where else can we house them more safely? And we have to do it in a way where um, historically what a lot of prisons have done is just put transgender inmates in solitary confinement and say, well, that's the best way we can protect you. It's just by locking you away. Uh, and if they have a long sentence, even if they have a short sentence, solitary confinement is torturous. It has a really horrible mental health effects on people and people, you know, start having hallucinations and they begin really feeling hopeless and depressed because they have no interaction at all and they have no access to programming and services and they just don't come out of their cells ever. Um, Mm -hmm. So the rules now prevent that too. They say you have to find a way to house these people safely. You have to staff your facilities with enough staff to make sure that they are safe. You have to have video cameras. You have to have 
an environment where these people are not going to be placed at risk just by living in general population. So rules and regulations, again, are only as good as their enforcement. Rules and regulations can and have been put in place and ignored. Are you confident that prison officials are going to abide by these new rules and regulations? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, this is early. So uh, the first compliance, you know, the first time that the rules were enforced was a couple of weeks ago. It does seem pretty clear that every state would like to be in compliance with this set of regulations, and they don't want to lose the federal funding that they would lose if they weren't in compliance. And they also don't want the sort of public shaming that will happen when the federal government calls them out publicly for not complying with the Prison Rape Elimination Act. The article is, How Will Bradley Manning Be Treated in Prison as a Woman? The former Army pilot, now known as Chelsea, is starting a 35-year sentence at an encouraging time for transgender inmates by Terry Schuster at TheAtlantic.com. Thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. All right. Thank you very much. Hi. I have an issue. I'm a straight female. Um, I used to be really uber-feminine, and now I notice I'm kind of getting into my masculine side and, um, you know, I dress more masculine now, not you know, not butch, but more masculine. I keep my hair short. Um, the issue is I like feminine energy, but I don't like women's bodies. I'm, like, really crazy attracted to gay men. And I'm wondering, is it ever possible for, like, a masculine girl to find, like, a really, really feminine straight guy who, you know, they could go out together, he could... He could be the girl. She could be the guy. <laughs> and basically, it's like I want a girlfriend, but I don't want a girl's body. Ugh. There are effeminate straight guys out there. I get letters from them. I, I just got an angry letter from an effeminate straight guy because I said on the podcast or in a column or somewhere that, that people's gaydar is usually pretty accurate, that if you think somebody's gay, they're almost invariably gay. And this guy, this straight guy wrote me this heartfelt letter explaining that he is a guy who – pops dings on people's gaydar and he is straight uh, and he has a really hard time convincing the women that he's interested in or his friends that he's actually legitimately straight, eats pussy, loves to fuck pussy, loves girls, loves tits because he pings onto people's gaydar so hard and he was a little angry at me for making his problems worse because all of his friends, seemingly all the girls he wants to eat the pussies of and play with the tits of, read my column. To him, I apologize. And to you, I say, obviously, there are guys like that out there because they get mad at me. So they exist in the world. And your job is just to put yourself out there and say exactly what it is that you want and go after them. Some of those guys might be bi. Some of those guys might fall somewhere along the gender spectrum uh, and you know be cross-dressers or sort of female-identified but male-bodied. You can find uh, – the person of your dreams. Just keep looking. I know they're out there because I hear from them. I know they're out there because I make them mad and then I hear from them. So that's how I, that's how I figure out who's out there in the world. I just try to piss off everybody until I've heard from everybody. But uh, your dream girly man is out there somewhere. Go find him. Hi. I'm a 26-year-old straight female in Colorado. So I was engaged to a guy who was an alcoholic and who was considerably older than me, but that's kind of beside the point. We ended up splitting up because he wouldn't quit drinking. And one of the things that he said to me um, was that I was abandoning him and he threatened violence and suicide a couple of times. And I took your advice and said it was emotional blackmail and that he was holding me hostage. And so I left 
And um, about a year and two months after we split up, he actually shot himself while he was drinking. Um, We hadn't been in contact, and it's been a while now since that happened. And I've been seeing a therapist and dealing with all of it that I just can't shake this sadness and guilt and is starting to affect my relationships with other men that I'm seeing. And I don't really know how to approach the topic with them about it. There's still some residual guilt as well, because he did tell me many times that I abandoned him. And I'd just like to get your advice maybe on how to deal with it with people that I'm in relationship now and just sort of how to parse it mentally. I'm really sorry about what you've been through. It sounds very traumatic. You sound traumatized. Um, And I I just – there's a couple of phrases that kept leaping out at me in in your call that I think you need to reframe and think differently about and it might help you to sort of reconceive how you regard what happened and what went down. You – he kept saying to you and and the the phrase, the sentence that seems to, you know – be stuck in your head and, and and weigh heavily on you is you abandoned me. That he would say that you abandoned me, right? Yeah. And he abandoned you when he chose alcohol, when he refused to get help, and when he refused to stop drinking. He he forced your hand. I mean, he went to AA and he did ninety meetings in ninety days. That's part of that was part of our deal, and then he started drinking again. So well, try to get help and failed. <laughs> and relapsed. And, you yeah. know, to, to the advice I've given others in the situation, it was a hostage situation and he killed the hostage. He himself was the hostage. He threatened himself yeah. with harm if you should leave and then he followed through. That doesn't make you the guilty party. He was the hostage and the hostage taker and you need to absolve yourself of guilt here. This was somebody who was set to self-destruct. You got involved with him. It could have been anybody. It could have been another woman, another girl who may have stayed not as long as you did, may have stayed a little longer or a lot longer than you did. But he – it sounds like he was on a course towards self-destruct and you were just musical chairs. You were the one he landed on at this stage in his descent into self-destruction. And that's just the randomness of the universe and the planet spinning and you cannot – carry guilt around with you for the rest of your life Yeah, uh, about it. You know, relationships, people don't have to be perfect and they don't have to be 100% healthy because nobody's perfect and one, nobody's 100% healthy. You know, if you're a listener, you've heard me probably use this expression. You got to be in good working order to be in a relationship yeah. and it doesn't sound like he was and so you got out of that relationship which was an appropriate thing for you to do and a thing you had a right to do and then he continued along his way and a year later, a year after, so it could have been something else that triggered the suicide that had nothing to do with you. He finally and inevitably, it sounds like, reached that point of self-destruction and that's terrible and that's tragic and that's sad but it's not on you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in therapy and trying to deal with all of that and you know there are 
I'll get flashes where I know that that's the case, and then I'll get flashes where I feel like that's definitely not the case. Where you but, feel like it. So, so what, what, what's the alter, what's the alternate, you know, reality? You know, if you'd made a different choice, where would you be now? Yeah. Could well, you, could you honestly, I'm I'm really glad that I wasn't the one that found him. And there's a part of me that feels incredibly guilty for saying that. Well, do you think do you think that you could have fixed him if you'd stayed with him? No. No. Okay. Well, then you didn't abandon him. Yeah. We do not have a right as individuals to point at other people and say, it is your responsibility to save me from myself. It is your responsibility to pop the hood and get in here and repair me or I'm going to self-destruct and then it's on you. Mm-hmm. He was an adult. Yeah. And he abandoned you for alcohol. And yeah. It, and it had a sad ending. And you know what? Was he drinking and did he have a drinking problem before you came along? Yes. Was he on this trajectory if you had never met? Um, yeah. Where, where, where and when did you meet? How did you meet? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a complicated story. Um, he was actually a professor of mine. Okay, if you hadn't taken his class. Yeah, he probably wouldn't have ended up much better. Random circumstance brought you together. You mm-hmm. you were along for part of the ride. You witnessed some of his descent. You're not responsible for it. Depression, mental illness, there's all sorts of things at play here. Mm-hmm. And you just can't point the finger at yourself. You can't take over for him blaming yourself. He got in your head and with this final violent act really, really got in your head. Yeah. I was actually the last person that he called and I didn't answer his call. You have to forgive him and you have to forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. It's sad. It's sad. I'm not saying you should. It, 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 I, would, I would think there was something wrong with you if you didn't have feelings about this. If you were like, oh, yeah, whatever. Glad I didn't marry him. Huh, I'd have to mop that floor. <laughs> right? If you were blasé and cavalier about it, I would think there was something wrong with you. So to a certain, you know, to a certain extent, it's a, it's a good sign that you ache a little. But you need to compartmentalize the ache and you need to see who is ultimately responsible and you need to absolve yourself. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's just hard also to think about how you broach that subject with somebody. I feel like it's this incident that happened in the past that's going to give everybody a, like, what the fuck moment, you know? What are you afraid of? That somebody's <laughs> going to look at you and think, if I date this woman, I'm going to kill myself? <laughs> no. I mean, everybody's got dark experiences in their lives. Everyone's got low moments. Everyone's been privy to, witness to, or adjacent to tragedy. Mm-hmm. Right? So... You know, when you disclose this, you are likely to hear something from the person to whom you are disclosing that's equally dark, that's equally painful. Because everybody's got baggage. Yeah. And how that person reacts to the disclosure is a way of learning about that person. And, mm-hmm. and how you handle it and how you've processed it is – and you unpacking that for that person is a way they get insight into you and your character. 
if I was with somebody, if I was dating some guy, you know, if I was single and I was dating some guy and he told me that, you know, his ex, somebody that he had been engaged to or lived with for a while, killed himself and he could give a shit, I would think this person is crazy and I want nothing to do with this person. This person has no soul. Mm-hmm. Right? I would you would you would expect that person to have some regrets and some lingering feelings and and and, and trauma from that. It's a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't expect that person to be paralyzed by it and I wouldn't fault that person for not being paralyzed by it. And I wouldn't I wouldn't then look at that person and think better of that person if they were claiming responsibility for something that they were not responsible for. It makes me sad that my ex-boyfriend killed himself. I didn't do it and it's not my fault. But wow, that yeah. was traumatic and sad. Yeah. You got to you got to forgive yourself. You were not you did not abandon him. He abandoned you. He chose alcohol and dissent. And you stepped off that ride because you had to to preserve your to save your own life you had to he threatened you with violence you said he would threaten violence against other people and himself you did the only thing you could do you're going to stay with somebody how you're you're in your mid 20s you're going to stay with somebody for 50 years 60 years because he's pointing a gun at his head or a gun at your head yeah you are not the guilty party here. You are not the perpetrator. You're the victim in this. And he was the victim too of demons, of mental illness, of depression, of alcoholism. But mm-hmm. you're, not, you're not the bad guy. Well, thank you for thinking so. <laughs> well, you need to start thinking so. Even if you have to fake it until no, you make I- it. You have to will yeah, yourself I, to, to believe that. I do that. most of the time. It's just in those dark moments where I'm like, oh, holy crap. You know, it's one of those things where you go along your life and everything's okay until you think about the fact that you're going to marry somebody who then shot themselves. Like that, yep. it, it's and when that, overwhelming. And when that pops, <laughs> when that comes to mind, you should be pulled up short a little bit. It should give you pause. It shouldn't paralyze you and it shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be filled with guilt or regret or self-recrimination at that moment. Yeah. You can let go of those feelings while still being able at those moments when his death comes to you to, to, to sort of feel the full weight and solemnity of those thoughts and, and the colossal sort of existential tragedy of it without taking responsibility for it. Yeah. You have survivor's guilt. Yeah. And you're not the only one mm-hmm. in the world with, with, with those feelings. And sometimes you have to let them wash over you. You feel the fuck out of your feelings. Then you walk away from them. Yeah. Good luck. I'm really sorry. Wow. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate the call back. I, I just was really sad this morning. And um, it means a lot that you called. I appreciate it. Enjoy your life. Uh, you have a good podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the gang. Uh, I just finished listening to uh, 359 and wanted to call in and comment on the, the extensive discussion with uh, John Shore, who uh, seems like a nice guy, and it's good to see he's on the right side of the issue. 
but I have to say, Dan, I, I appreciate you uh, taking him to task uh, on everything he was saying. I, I think what he was saying really reeks of uh, what in the atheist world we call the, the Bible buffet, where modern-day Christians will pig out and just you know chow down on, on the parts of the Bible they like, the ice cream bar and the, and the filet mignon, and they'll just kind of skip over the parts of the Bible they don't like, you know, the, the salad bar and the cold meatballs. And, uh, you know, the problem is not that Tony Perkins and Peter LaBarbera and, and all your old roommates are, are spreading these lies. It's Christianity itself, the institution, is fundamentally anti-gay. So I, I think all in all, comparing the not all like that project to the, to the It Gets Better is, is really insulting uh, because American Christians are not an oppressed minority. Uh, they are an oppressive majority. So if there are Christians who aren't like that and they want to affect change, they should stop donating money to groups that spread hate and fund anti-gay legislation, and they should take their church leadership to task if their donations to the church are being funneled to these groups. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male, and I just wanted to address something that was said in uh, episode 359. A woman called in talking about men who list sex on OkCupid under the category of six things I could never do without. And I wanted to clarify, she asked, why do men do this? I was on OkCupid for quite a while, and women do it all the time, too. And my issue with it is not that they're being too upfront with their sexuality or that I think it broadcasts that sex is all they're interested in, but it's an issue of relatability. I went for more than a year without being able to find any sex partners, as do a lot of people. And when you list sex among things you could never do without, it's sort of like saying, I could never do without my mansion. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to episode 359. I'm a straight female in Arizona, and I, too, put sex as one of my six things I can't live without. So I wanted to call in and say that straight women do it, too. And um, to thank you for standing up for us and for not pathologizing that. I've had trouble in relationships in the past where my partner did like sex, of course, but they didn't like talking about liking sex as much as I did. I really enjoy sexting and incorporating the buildup of having sex and talking about sex. So if somebody is not comfortable with that word on my profile and the overt sexuality of my profile, it's a pretty good signal that they won't be a good long-term match for me. So just thought I would call in and say um, thanks for sending up those. And we're going to leave it there. Thanks, as ever, to all the subscribers to the Magnum Savage Lovecast. We appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number here at Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage, where I tweet about politics and marriage and Russia and other stuff I find interesting. If what you want from Twitter is lots of dirty pictures of hot gay porn stars, you should follow Kyle at... Kyle owns all ass because he tweets out a lot of that show. My new book, American Savage, still available in bookstores now. Go get it. 206-201-2720. That's the number. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.